I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode. We like to have a lot of fun. Indeed. I'm just kidding. We do. We do like to have a lot of fun. Our, we like to share our love. That's right. It's our expression of joy of film. But we start off every episode with the week in review. What we've been watching since the last episode in TV and film. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or main review. And then finish up with film faves, our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, we will first have a weekend review discussion of Hamilton, which hit Disney Plus on... Independence Day weekend, the weekend before our last episode was posted. Then we will have a main review of Dr. Cal- the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Do you, can you say the title of that again? Because do you have any idea how many times I forgot the name of this thing and tried to Google it and came up with some sort of Beverly Hills cosmetic surgeon? That's very odd. Odd. It is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And then we will finish our march backwards through time in this episode with our list of our favorite 1930s movies so we got a big episode let's get into it with the week in review yes it seemed like we could not avoid we would be much remiss if we ignored hamilton which hit disney plus on july 3rd at time of recording this is uh sunday july 12th so we saw it last weekend, I believe. This is, of course, the stage recording of the famous hit Broadway musical. Uh, recorded in 2016, it was originally planned by Disney Plus to be released a year and a half from now. So sometime in... 2021, 22, and instead they decided to move up the plans of release to now, thanks to the pandemic. The pandemic. <laughs> so, let's t- spend a few minutes talking about this. Shanna, do you mind if I spend a minute telling a little story about Hamilton? Uh, yeah, you should go for it. Okay. So Hamilton is one of the most talked about things, <laughs> things of the past decade, right? Like, never mind just Broadway musical or play. It's like one of the most talked about and regarded creations of the 2010s, right? You could be all the way across country have never gone to a Broadway show ever in your life, and you have heard of Hamilton as was the case with me. So I was actually looking forward to this opportunity to finally experience this much exalted, much talked about, much praised play on Broadway uh, through Disney Plus. 
And I pretty much expected it to be just a stage recording, you know, with the audience and stuff. I've seen stage recordings of plays before. I didn't expect much different. Uh, I knew that the premise is basically it's about Alexander Hamilton and, and that era, the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence, but the main cast were people of color. Interesting spin. I knew that it was uh, the music in it was of a hip hop flavor, uh, having listened to Miranda talk in interviews. But do you know the one thing that nobody ever mentioned once in all the talk about Hamilton? I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Tell me what we did not know. So you didn't know either. I had no idea. You didn't know either. Okay. So this thing starts, and it starts with an opening number, which is fine. A lot of musicals start with an introductory opening number. That's great. That's right. But then I started to, as that opening number continues on, I started to have the sinking feeling in my thought, just a passing thought. Oh, no. <laughs> Your face was hilarious when this happened. And then my fears were confirmed when a second song began immediately after the first song. This is a hip-hop version of a rock opera. Oh my god, I hate rock operas. In general, I just do not like the form, and I am in for two hours, 40 minutes of this non-stop music. Uh, it's a hip hopera. No one ever mentioned that. Not once. Not even a little. It was quite the experience for me. Shanna, why don't you share a little bit of your thoughts of Hamilton before I, I carry on with mine? I thought it was great. I also did not know about the rock opera-ness. And it's, it's not my favorite style either, but... This did speed things along, as our friends have shared with us. If there was talking instead of singing, this could have been a five-hour show. So I appreciate that. Well, I mean, there'd the, be a lot less talking, I yeah. imagine. Well, the performances were really awesome and very energetic and stimulating. And I was like, oh, my God, they must have very strong lungs and vocal cords and all the other things and abs, maybe. I, mm -hmm. I don't know what's what you need to keep going that long <laughs> okay. in that fashion. And the costuming was very interesting and the lighting was so wonderful. And the stage had a centerpiece and then an, a ring around that. And mm. I think another ring and it would rotate in different directions. And that was just super exciting to see. I'm so glad that this is available to so many people to view because not everyone can afford 300 to, I don't know. A thousand. Three, yeah, a thousand dollars to go watch it in real life. I mean, my exposure to this is knowing all the teens and preteens in our circle all know what this is and know the words by heart. And so it was very nice for us to watch our son's reaction mm. to this recording yeah, of yeah. the show. Mm-hmm. And to see him show so, to see our son show so much emotion at the height of teenhood. Mm. I mean, it, it feels well, like it's the, the beginning. height. It's not I the know height it's yet. the beginning, but it yeah. really feels like the height. Well, just you uh, buckle up, <laughs> buckle buttercup. Up. <laughs> <laughs> and to see 
I guess how happy he was to finally see it mm -hmm. was really what was special to me. Mm. In addition to that, I, I love that this cast w was not white. I love that that got bent. I loved learning about America in this way. Mm. I guess that's what really comes to mind. There were scenes mm. that I really enjoyed about infidelity and other mm. things. Mm -hmm. But that's really my general feelings about this. Okay. You're you're right. You know, it's interesting. I also avoided ever listening to the soundtrack or anything. Oh, yeah, me too. You know? And I'm glad I did because apparently <laughs> it means I would have listened to the whole damn play well, if I listened to the soundtrack. Maybe you wouldn't have watched it. Which is the case for our son. So it was interesting. Like, I had no idea. He'd been talking this thing to death. That, you know, he loves, oh, you know, you don't know who so-and-so from this from history is. No, and I don't how know. cool right? is that, that he's doing that to you? Yeah. I know this person from history and you don't. Right. To an extent, yes, absolutely. Um, you're, you're right about that. But I, I was just reflecting on how odd an experience it would be uh, and how unfortunate for me an experience it would be if I knew the entire damn thing because I had listened to the soundtrack. It was interesting having him experience it visually instead of just audibly this time and he got more out of it by experiencing it visually and you're right there's a lot of top-notch aspects to it on a production level as i would expect the costuming the staging the lighting all that sort of stuff was was great i also have to say you know What's really impressive about the play is not only is there no fat in this huge freaking lawn ass play, every single thing is significant as relevant ties back to something later. There's, there's nothing that could be trimmed from it. And also there's aspects of the story that turn the attention away from Alexander Hamilton into supporting characters namely women and i think in those instances is when the th when the show actually started to to hook me and when it started to actually connect with me because i will say for at least half of this thing i was sitting there enduring it because this was an ex first example of me experiencing something that everybody in the world that has experienced it, loves, adores, foams at the mouth about it, huge fandom, right? And I had to sit there thinking, okay, this is not connecting with me, but what is it about it that is so great? And I, I clicked on A, it's a hip opera, which I think that might be one absolutely unique thing about it. I don't know of any other hip operas, right? taking the idea of a rock opera and um, using the, the uh, hip-hop culture into it to tell the story. And two, of course, the casting. And, you know, the only white people in it were two English people. So that was interesting. I was able to appreciate it objectively, truly objectively on that level. But it wasn't until uh, attention is turned to a couple supporting women that I actually really got 
to get invested in the story, and that mostly happens in the second half of the play. So I I can appreciate I, I, I appreciate the play on that level. The recording uh, itself. Let's talk a little bit about the recording itself, uh, just for a second. This is not a standard stage recording that I have experienced. It is in, in, in some ways, but it's not on the whole, right? This thing is edited like crazy. They apparently recorded two performances in front of an audience and a third night with no audience and just cameras. So that way they could get close-ups. And I have heard people who have actually seen the stage play say that one of the great things or the greatest thing about this is you can see things that you couldn't have seen in person. You can see the, the expressions on people's faces and, and other details in their performances. And I suspect, that leads me to kind of suspect that most of what the footage was that was used was actually from that third night that was audience free. Uh, coupled with the fact that we don't hear the audience very often, do we? How many times did you hear the audience? You know, you hear them when it counts the most, like when the line, immigrants, we get the job done, you mm. hear wonderful roaring and cheering. Just a few times, really. Yeah, I mean, on my memory, it's like three times, but maybe it's a couple more than that. I don't know. But in a, in a two and a half hour plus performance, that's not many times that uh, the audience is present. Yeah. Was there anything else that you want to speak to about the play or how it was shot or anything else? I think it's completely worth the what is it three hours three and a half hours five five hours it's, what it's, is it okay so here's the thing it's two hours 40 minutes seven to eight minutes of that two hours 40 minutes is credits i believe because it ended at like two hours 30 two hours 32 this is very much worth it and is very innovative in taking a piece of history that's kind of boring you know it's I don't know and then you're learning about it in a different way a very stimulating way a very take power back kind of way mm -hmm. and that's really innovative and I hope that we can have more like that yeah your score on it my objective score on it is an eight and a half I give it an eight out of ten I feel like some elements were a little bit confusing especially since a couple people play two characters for a first-time viewing, it, it was very hard uh, for me to follow and understand. There were times where I, I only understood like 60% of what was said in it. But overall, outstanding production, very well shot, and one of those things that you have to experience the whole to in order to have an opinion, a complete opinion, and come to an appreciation of it. So, you know, now we know what all the fuss about Hamilton is. And it's great that there's such a fuss about it. Absolutely. So that about does it for the weekend review for us. Let's move on to the main event and our 100th anniversary review of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
I have no idea if there's a trailer to this thing that actually works for um, radio. So <laughs> if there is, then you'll have just heard it. Okay, so this is a German film that came out in 1920, February of 1920. Okay, usually what we do with our reviews is we talk about what was good, what we liked about a movie. Uh, what worked for us before moving on to what was bad, what we didn't like about a movie, what sucked about it, and then moving into spoilers and final thoughts. What I'm going to do first is talk a little bit about the, the actual film and its influence, give a little bit of understanding and context here before we get into our opinions and discussions about you know how well this movie holds up 100 years later, to modern audiences and what works about the film. So The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a, as I said, a German expressionist film. Roger Ebert called it arguably the first true horror film. Its legacy is that it helped create with its its shadows, its use of light, the way that shafts of light were actually colored on sets. Its uh, visual style helped create German Expressionism, which then led to the creation of film noir. It's uh, very dark and twisted and bizarre, lots of distortions. Uh, of perspective, form, dimension, and scale. There's a, a chaotic and unhinged look to things. The sets have very sharp, pointed forms, very oblique, curving lines, narrow, spiraling streets, structures and landscapes that lean and twist in unusual angles. Roger, critic Roger Ebert described it as a jagged landscape of sharp angles and tilted walls and windows staircases climbing crazy diagonals trees with spiky leaves grass that looks like knives so that's an idea gives you an idea of what the visual style of this film is and it was all about expressing expressing emotion rather than tight compositions good point so it is considered the quintessential work of german expressionist cinema and uh, of course the most famous example of it is a silent film, of course, being in 1920, in case that was not made clear. Uh, sound did not really come about until 1927 with the jazz scener having parts of its film uh, in sound. So right firmly in the silent era in the early years of film. It uh, went on to have a huge uh, influence on other German directors. You would see you know, a couple years later, Murnau's Nosferatu have some influence from Caligari, which of course would trickle down to many other vampire films down the road. Fritz Lang's Metropolis is influenced by this, and M, the Peter Lorre crime film. There's so many films that came down the line. Just about anything that is dark, anything that has to do with serial killing, uh, anything that has to do with, uh, gosh, there's, there's horror elements of this I, I, I want to get into later, but there's definitely horror elements of this that, that influence films that we have seen since, that modern audiences have seen. 
that would not exist, arguably, had it not been for the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So this is a very significant film in, uh, in its place in film history. Now, with that groundwork laid, that understanding of where it is in film history and, and such, Shanna, tell us, what did you like about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? What was good about it? And in what ways does it hold up to modern film audiences? I've thought about this question for a long time. It's very difficult for me to just give a straight answer. So I'll rip it like a band-aid. Yes, this film is very effective still. At times it's trippy and intoxicating. But I haven't quite seen shadows be such a frightening thing. Hmm. You know, as I was driving yesterday, there was some sort of shadow in a bush. And I thought it was a weird person. And it was just a lack of it was just negative space it wasn't anything mm. and it wasn't even a shadow it was lack of light and mm. so i was really scared for a minute driving like i'm totally fine nothing's gonna come get me <laughs> but that that was the effect this movie had on me so i think it holds up in its own right i don't think that every person can watch this movie and even sit through it because at one point there was a very scary shadow for me personally mm -hmm. uh, that was very tricky in my mind. I don't know how they did this sort of optical illusion shadow thing, but I did not want to watch the rest of it because I was, I was very scared and it's just a freaking shadow. It's not domestic abuse. There's no dog, you know, it wasn't <laughs> my normal, very Triggers. scary things, right. you know. It's not even supernatural. It's right. It's not even supernatural, but man, those shadows look supernatural. Like, wow. And I think it was intoxicating because of all the diagonal lines that they use mm. in this art movement. Did I like it? No. <laughs> I appreciate it for what it is. Okay. And I appreciate that it's there and that we can see it, that we have access to it. Yeah. But I don't like it. <laughs> All right. We'll get into the reasons okay. why in a moment. Uh, was there anything else that was good about the film? I think a lot of things stemmed from this movie. So I, there's things I appreciate. Like, I think this is where carny stereotypes came from. Okay. It's what I think. And look, I haven't been exposed to a lot of carnivals, but that film-wise, it definitely felt like there was influence coming from here. I suppose this is a good opportunity to pause because I realized in all my setup of the film and its place in film history, I failed to even describe what the film is about, what its premise is. Well, and it takes a while to figure out what the hell is going on mm. because the way it unfolds in the beginning... It's much like a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so there's a lot of cutting. Like, it's like they figured out how to cut, 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 cut. 
you know, and paste this piece here and put this piece here. And it's like they were learning how to make a jigsaw puzzle for the first time film wise. Well, you're talking about in terms of shots or you're talking yeah. about in terms of sets? So what okay. happens in the beginning is there's a man and he's sitting next to, I believe, a reverend. And they talk about how there's all these spirits that surround us constantly. And quite honestly, everybody looks like a spirit during this time of film because, you know, skin tones are very washed out. Well, they're made up and everything's in, this, very, in this film, yeah. Well, and, every, and everything is very airy yeah. during this era of filmmaking, quite frankly. Well, in this particular film, I would say, because uh, take as a point, counterpoint to that, Chaplin's The Kid came out the year after. And people don't look eerie in that film. Yes, but it's Chaplin and he looks like a normal human. Right. So anyway, uh, what will happen is this man is telling this other man that this happens and the spirits are here and this is happening and that. Oh, and look over there. But in between, there's little cuts of other things happening. Hmm. Like he'll say, it happened in a village. And you see him say it. And then all of a sudden, it's like slide because it jumps to a painting, a set design of a village. And the carnival had come into town. So we see him saying that. And then there's a carnival backdrop. And it's it's very interesting how it chops. Yeah. It's very choppy. I just want to interrupt for a point of clarity. It is... It does have a framing device of a guy telling a story to another guy. What happened in this small town? And essentially what it is is a man, an insane hypnotist, joined a carnival. And he has, he's basically, his act is basically having a somnambulist, which is not a term I was was familiar with. I had to look that up. Right. A somnambulist, as I understand it, is basically someone who sleepwalks yeah is essentially a combined sleep and wakefulness uh sort of phenomenalist phenomenon he has a a sleep disorder and this person is able to supposedly wake him on command and tell him what to do or whatever well the premise of the film is that this insane hypnotist actually uses this somnambulist to create murders in the village right that's where the serial killer element comes uh into play here so that's the basic premise of the film but go ahead and continue what you're explaining about it yeah so i feel like this is where powerpoint presentations come from (laughs) uh (laughs) okay you know uh, the doctor has to get a permit and as he's going into this weird building to get a permit that's where you see a lot of diagonals and it's very stimulating and there's so many men in it a corridor and a lot of the time it doesn't make sense to me and it's very unsettling we get close-ups of the doctor and he has what looks like painted eyebrows on him mm. and painted extra shadows you know like black paint kind of emphasizing any lines on his face but not all the lines that exist on a person's face which is it's specifically by his eyebrows and it's just it's so trippy because I felt like a lot of the times I couldn't see expressions on the actors' faces, and that was disturbing for me too. Mm. A movie where the the shadows are very scary, there's a lot of diagonals, there's all these things around them that's very stimulating, and then there's no expressions or hardly any expressions on the face. 
is very scary for me. And when I started reading about German Expressionism, how the state controlled what art you were learning about and practicing, and it was very, you know, fine art, you know, like very, like, just think Renaissance for, you know, simplicity's sake. There was this revolt to express themselves and that's where a lot of abstraction was happening and a lot of thick lines and to be able to express emotion and so it made me feel a little more appreciative after reading that because I thought well maybe there there is this lack of emotion on the faces because there's so much around them that there are so many artistic elements like lighting uh, line work framing that's trying to express emotion rather than the actual person you're seeing on the camera expressing emotion and that is the most interesting part of this film I think you gain more from this film knowing what at least one article being read about German expressionism and hearing okay state was controlling artists artists revolted via expressing emotion via artistic elements and kind of empowering too because there's you know the the people themselves are so in control of their emotions but everything around them is is emotional mm. and so i guess if they were being very emotionally expressive on their faces it would be too much it would seem disingenuous mm. so i i really appreciate it for that and i think it's a nice little protest to the state's control at the time well we'll talk a little bit later about possible interpretations of what the whole thing means but uh, before I share my thoughts on what was good about it, I just want to speak to going back to what you're saying about faces and about the Dr. Caligari in the first place. He was played by Werner Krauss, by the way, who at the time was 36 years old. So, yes, he was, looks like he's 80. Right. He's definitely okay. made up. Right, as an right. older guy. So there was extra stuff happening there. It definitely explains what you're talking about with the okay. eyes and other things, you know. And, of course, he, he must be wearing a wig and other things, too, right? Uh, you know, you see a picture of him here, and you could see shades of Caligari, but he has to be definitely made up to look... He looks so haircut. freaking baby face there. Sort oh, my of. God. Yeah. This was actually photographed around the time of the film, uh, as a matter of fact. So he And he died... At the age of 75. So, yes. Okay. So, I, I, I appreciate, as well as you, in terms of a film studies perspective, its place in film, what it's doing. It's very unusual, very different looking film than any other silent film I watched, too. Let alone a lot of other films that would come after. I, I can appreciate how I see shades of this film in other films and years to come i think the look of it is one of the things i appreciated most i think its ending is also really cool we can talk about the ending a little bit later in spoilers i didn't necessarily this is my second time watching it and 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 i didn't necessarily see the ending coming or remember the ending coming the way it was i also appreciate that this is a fairly bite-sized film it's only 74 minutes I so, think it's got to be the shortest film we've ever reviewed. 
in a main review. Yeah, probably. Probably, and so that also means that anybody who's, who's interested in checking this out, which you can do on Amazon Prime, by the way, it's on Amazon Prime, easy to access. It only will take a little bit of your time in a day to do so. But let's let's move on. It feels like you have you, you have a lot of interesting and great things to say about where you appreciate the film and how it in what ways it does hold up what doesn't work for you about this film 100 years later or even on its own merits what sucked about the movie or what didn't work for you in general you know that's a more difficult question than the first set of questions you asked me really i really battle with that i don't actually have legit issues with this film and by legit i mean i i definitely prefer seeing emotion on faces Mm -hmm. because that's personally what i'm like and i need to see it but i appreciate how it was made and what and and what i interpreted that i've mentioned already i appreciate those things so i don't have an issue with it okay Look, the sound is is jarring at times and scratchy, but that's just the way it is because of how and when it was made. By by the sound, you're referring to the score. Yeah, because yeah. it is a silent film. But the quality of the sound is a little off. I don't right. know if you had a better experience. We watched this separately, mm-hmm. so I don't know if you had something better happening. But I there's a yeah that i can't stand it drives me fucking crazy i've noticed this when driving so, around in my car with mm-hmm. in my audio hookup yes <laughs> i mean that's a surefire way to make me go insane so <laughs> and i'm I, I i didn't even it's interesting you brought that up because i didn't even notice that i think i'm just kind of used to that sound quality level from silent films well i haven't watched a lot of silent films mm-hmm. so because it's not really my thing. Mm. I need to hear. I need to see. Not everyone is as expressive as Charlie Chaplin and crew. Mm. You know, so it's difficult for me to connect personally. So all the issues I have are personal preferences. I don't have any objective issues other than I wish there was some way to fix the sound like there's got to be a way where you can release a new version if it's that important i'm sure it's important to german the you know the german arts and i'm just surprised that no one's tried to touch it and make a new version where hey we fixed the sound and and this is what it would have sounded like to people watching it live you know maybe i mean there's limitations to sound back then right uh, even in nineteen early nineteen thirties movies, there's limitations to the sound quality, because there was a new thing even then, right? So at best, yeah. someone would have to re-record the score. Look, maybe if I watch this a second time, I'd be like, "Hey, this is faulty. This is faulty." But I look at it and I look how it was created and when it was created, and I have a lot. I just have nothing but appreciation for it, even. You know, vignette- even though it was hard for you to get, there. yeah, vignetting is when the corners of an image is dark, mm-hmm. and at one point they dark, they blacken everything, man, yeah. to to just the like right person, a person on the right of the frame, mm. and then it spreads out. And I at first I was like, what the fuck are we doing? We're fucking mad here, and then I realized, oh, 
They're trying to control where your eye goes when they're not using diagonals in this particular scene. And they don't have a zoom lens. They have one lens. They have to stay in position. And this was what they did to deal with that. So it's a very solution-driven film. Mm. So it's a great film. I just am very scared of it. I wonder, there's a few things that you said a moment ago about wanting or needing certain things in a film and the and those things kind of being missing from this and i wonder if that gets to the question of uh, how palatable do you think this film is to modern audiences look i i know people very dear and near to me that are not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole you know because it's not the kind of movie that they want to experience. I think that this movie is only going to be experienced, sadly, by people who are interested in the history of film, by people who are interested in German art movements or movement that influenced, you know, a couple decades of art movement around the world, you know, in, in when you look at the history of it. And I think it will get underappreciated. Mm-hmm. I... I think you have to have a love for film. This mm. isn't your everyday viewing. Mm. I would agree with that for slightly different reasons. I My issue with this movie is its plotting or and pacing doesn't quite hold up to today's audiences. I and even, am guilty of forwarding 10 second, doing the 10 second button. Oh, oh we're really? not doing much. We're moving on now. Interesting. <laughs> tap, 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 tap. Now, and, and I'm going to use point of reference and compare it to more contemporary films of its time. Chaplin films, Buster Keaton films, while those are lively comedies, right? Or even, I would say, D.W. Griffith films, which, you know, I struggle with those too. Those take a lot of patience. Metropolis by Fritz Lane, seven years later. I think those are movies that are relative contemporaries of Dr. Caligari, and I think they don't suffer as much from the plotting or pacing issues that this 74-minute film does at times. I do feel it. it's one issue is that it does drag a little bit. For a film well, about serial killing. Yes. I'm glad you brought up Metropolis because I believe pacing in Metropolis is what I had a huge problem with. Mm. And pacing can either invite a viewer or throw a viewer completely away from the project. So Mm. it's an important one to think about. But I think that in this movie, they want you to be uncomfortable and uneasy. Mm. So I think that's why it was the length it was. And on that level, it works still today. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, Mm. at one point there's a shadow movement and I'm like, Slender Man! Slender Man! You know? And another point, you know, they say that if the slumber princess tells you your fate (laughs) Mm -hmm. or sees you, then they kill you. And I was like, oh, look, the ring. You know? Uh, (laughs) Like, so I make, and I'm very good at making connections. And and those are two that really stood out to me. Yeah. Even and, though it's generations removed, yeah. you could see shades of Caligari in them. And you know what? Anyone who studied film, I'm sure, is going to have to watch this and talk about it and mm. analyze it and essay it and all that jazz. Yeah. So you're not going to tell me that it didn't influence them in some way at some point, either consciously or subconsciously. Okay, so let's 
move on to spoilers in a second here to kind of like wrap up for those who haven't seen it, which I imagine is quite a number of people who might be listening of those five people who might be listening. Um, Is this a film that you recommend? Five is my lucky number. I appreciate each and every one of you. (laughs) Is this a film that you'd recommend to everybody? Does the good outweigh the bad? And what would you score it? I'm really glad you asked it like that. I don't recommend it to everybody. I recommend it to people who are interested in the development of film history, Mm -hmm. who are interested in seeing how Germans revolt Mm. through art. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to watch if you, if you like horror Mm -hmm. or are interested in horror, I think this would be good for you to watch. Mm -hmm. You might find it difficult at times and no one's going to judge you if you 10 second that button, you know, if you push (laughs) the 10 second button. On the other hand, it's only 10 seconds, but you know, well, that's why you, you barely miss anything except when shadow things are happening, which you don't want to miss any of that. But Mm. That's who I recommend it for. It's not for the everyday moviegoer. Mm-hmm. Yes, the good outweighs the bad. There isn't really much bad, like I said earlier, mm. even though I, I want to. <laughs> uh, it's all personal. I mean, this shit. wasn't an instant favorite film for you, though, right? No, but look, if if they if they ever re-recorded the sound yeah. and touched it up a little bit, yeah. I don't think they'll ever do that because of its intention but i'd be like hey if that's 20 bucks let's get it because Mm. we're movie lovers Mm. this might sound weird but i think it's a nine out of ten it doesn't sound weird at all i totally understand it feels weird to say and i'm in a very objective place today okay (laughs) so maybe if i was feeling more like personal about things i'd be like this is a fucking two or something like that but that's extreme well that's why i'm saying what i'm saying yeah Yeah, so that's what i give it so for me i would say that issues with the pacing and i do think the score is absolutely ridiculous i forgot to mention this before you're talking about the sound quality and stuff but i did find that often the score was absurd and didn't necessarily match with what was happening on screen uh so i i am not a fan of that i would actually watch the film on mute without a score if possible because i think if anything the score detracts from the film rather than enhances it i give the film a seven out of ten yes everything else about the film does outweigh its flaws its pacing doesn't weigh what 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 is there down to be a, a huge problem its score can be dealt with so i give it a seven out of ten in comparison to your nine out of ten let's move on to spoilers let's talk about uh the ending and a few other things and wrap up here if you haven't seen the cabinet of dr caligari we recommend you do check it out if, if you are a movie lover and listening to this podcast you're probably going to be inclined to check it out and you can find it on amazon prime maybe not something you can recommend to all your buddies though or your drinking buddies uh but do check it out there from here on out though if you haven't seen it skip ahead to film phase we got a big one for you look at the show notes uh, to see what the timestamp is because we're going to talk spoilers and final thoughts for the cabinet of dr caligari now all right 
Shannon, let's talk about that Slender Man shit because <laughs> I need to be able to process that. We haven't talked about this by ourselves. Okay. I got to the 36 minute mark yeah. and I saw this incredibly creepy shadow movement where it wasn't just a shadow. They had obviously manufactured and, and carved some very interesting faceted sets. And when a shadow did dance along these sets, it was very creepy. It made the person look like they extended and stretched out their arm beyond the height of what they are. Clarify for me. Are you talking about the Conrad Veet character, the Somnambulist? I guess so. Okay. Because um, otherwise I'm not positive exactly what you're referring to in terms of the this thing. I didn't necessarily notice the moment you're talking about, as far as I can tell. You were tell. probably looking down at your phone or something. If you're not paying attention to this, like, 35, 36, 37 minute mark, you're going to miss it. Okay. And it, it happens very quickly, and that's also why it's so fucking scary. What was the what happened in that scene? He was coming around, a, he was slowly making his way through the village to get to the girl. Okay. And Before he, was, he tries kidnapping the girl? Yeah. He was coming not only out of the darkness, but into the light and trying to go up a corner. And, you know, his his movement is weird already. Mm-hmm. And so whatever they were doing with the lighting was just fucked up. <laughs> um, and so when I saw that moment, I was like, you know what? I'm not watching this anymore. That's fine, Jeff. I'm ending there. I'm right. not doing this. Yeah. And you were like, you got to do it. And that is the point like where my fear really set in as a photographer. If the shadows don't look right, like I'm not staying. <laughs> it's something wrong. <laughs> so that's one spoiler. And uh, d- did you want to jump into the end or do you have other stuff? Yeah. So no, the end is pr- the primary thing. There's not a lot else to discuss about this film the ending is a twist ending which in itself is significant right because i don't know that there's many in movies before this yeah. that played with the the idea of a twist ending and mm-hmm. what it what ended up happening was the guy who's telling the story ended up being an inmate in the same in a same asylum and all the cast of characters in the story are in this asylum with him be it employees or other inmates and including conrad Veets somnambulist who is actually a guy who's wide awake who's totally lucid who's uh able to have conversation or and and, and stuff too and we find out that it's actually the head of the asylum who the caligari character is based on right and so it changes this whole thing into a unreliable narrator perspective. And we find out that the teller of the story is actually insane. But it also brings a new level of fear. Mm. At first, you're seeing the story for what it is, yeah. how it's literally being told. Yeah. And it's scary at times. And then you see the twist and you're like, oh, holy shit. It's the 1920s. He's in an insane asylum. We all know that those weren't happy places. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't even know if they're happy, can be happy places now. I don't know. Mm. It's very ignorant of me, but there, there we have it. And it just brings a new level of terror. Mm. Okay. Know? In terms of what? Well, look at what he has to create in his mind to be okay. Somewhat okay. A horror? He has to create a horror. 
Uh, And like, I don't know what's going on there for real. And it really makes me think of Shutter Island. Mm. Tell me more about that. Because of the, I really hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone, but. Yeah, spoilers for Shutter Island, potentially, if you haven't seen it. Are they all gone? You know, Leonardo DiCaprio comes to the island as an investigator. And he's he's trying to solve a missing person case on the island. Mm-hmm. A patient has run away. He has to learn about the patient. You know, he's doing his thing as a PI, as a detective. Mm-hmm. And he's very intense. He has his own PTSD from war, I think. Mm-hmm. And we find out this is a, a, a huge ruse a huge story a huge exercise to try and break him out of his own delusions Mm -hmm. he is the one that is insane he's the one that's not okay Mm -hmm. and you know it's the same thing it's it's an insane asylum it's a mental hospital and Mm -hmm. he's not able to wake up from the delusion you know Mm. and so like i think without this movie shutter island wouldn't be a thing Right. And Shutter Island is as twisty as Dr. Caligari and has a few horror elements, more sure. modern day horror elements, you know, with the way they use lighting and sure. that fucking flicker effect. No, I think that's a, it's a good comparison. Strobe. Sorry. Uh, uh, it's a good comparison, as a matter of fact. I, I find, okay, so first of all, I'll just say in passing, one, one clue at the very beginning that something's not right is the woman that the storyteller says is his bride there to be married. She passes by like a freaking vampire in a trance going off to feed. And like something's very <laughs> eerie about that woman. That doesn't feel right. Uh, and, and there is something wrong. She's an inmate in this asylum we, we learn, right? Yeah. And, and I can't remember what her specific deal is. I'm sure it's right here in front of me. Uh, she believes she's a queen, so she has her own delusions. But what's interesting... Brilliant posture. Yeah. What's odd about the film to me and in its ending is how the how it absolutely ends. It ends with the the director of the asylum announcing that he understands his ailment and now he knows how to treat it. And then the film ends. There's no explanation there's no context we have no idea exactly what he is he has. getting a frontal lobotomy you, is he getting a side lobotomy like what the hell is happening was that an issue for you or how did you or did you have come away with an interpretation of what were to take from that i felt the ending was too abrupt mm-hmm. after all this i don't even know what to say after well, everything after, after everything abrupt, that yeah. we've experienced already in the viewing now you just say oh i know what to do like, maybe it was supposed to be this sort of open-ended thing. Maybe it could have been interpreted as, oh, he really has found me out. Um, you know, maybe some of the audience still think I'm the scary doctor. And Really? That was one thing. And, okay. and then another thing was, well, he's, he's, he's getting a lobotomy of some kind. You know, it just depends yeah. on your knowledge of things. It would be interesting to see what our son thinks of how it ends, because I don't think he's aware of lobotomies and... Uh, the problems with mental asylums and mm. institutions, especially of that time. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's a fair conclusion as well. I honestly don't know. 
before we wrap up, let's speak a little bit of the themes because you mentioned something about what it represents. And I was looking up here on the Wikipedia article and it's interesting. Apparently Caligari thematizes brutal and irrational authority by making a violent and possibly insane authority figure its antagonist. And so it goes on to how it says that Caligari is symbolic of the German war government and fatal tendencies inherent in the German system, saying the character stands for an unlimited authority that idolizes power as such and, to satisfy its lust for domination, ruthlessly violates all human rights and values, which really speaks to what you were saying before about how the, and a so somewhat oppressive government and how German expressionism was a way to to react to it. It's very scary how correct the state got it because they were like, oh, well, if we're controlling how we fund the arts, we can control how people express themselves. Mm. And if you're controlling how people express themselves, you know, the pot's going to boil over sometime. So, yeah, it's interesting. One point to that is how Cesar, the somnambulist, lacks any individuality and is simply a tool of his master. That he is so dependent on Caligari that he falls dead when he strays too far from the source of his sustenance. Uh, there's a lot of books that's actually been written about this film, interestingly enough. Uh, Caligari at one point is said to be not only a symbol of arrogant authority in the film, he's not, he's not the only symbol of arrogant authority in the film. He is a victim of harsh authority himself during the scene with the dismissive town clerk who brushes him off and ignores him to focus on his paperwork, which was a scene that stood out to me, actually. Is that uh, in the beginning? It's in near the, the corridor? Yeah. When he's trying to get a permit? Yes, and the guy is sitting like in a really odd stool that's really set high. Yeah, well, it is a very odd mm-hmm. setup, yeah. Yeah, and, and the... the cruelty of and the rudeness of that clerk was something that the government employee was something that uh, stood out to me and it is argued by a film historian that Caligari's murderous rampage through Cesar can be seen as a rebellious anti-authoritarian streak in response to such experiences as these even in spite of his own authoritarianism and it's worth noting on that idea that the town clerk is the first victim. I didn't realize that because sometimes the pacing was so off for me that my attention would drift. Mm, mm. So, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So did you have any other ideas or perspectives on what the the film could be representing and and that you wanted to expound on? No, I, I think, I think that's all I have in me Mm -hmm. for now. I'm coming at it from an art perspective and photography perspective so you know really uh, that's what I'm bringing to the table I don't have any other interpretations I think it's good that we're talking about it because it also you know what you've just said makes me think about why they really did have to find a way to really reject authority and it's very interesting that this is how they did it yeah I I think that you hit on some things that apparently are hitting the nail on the head also take into consideration this movie came out shortly after the end of world war one only a couple years i think after 
World War One. Uh, so you know, which is as I understand it, a war that Germany lost. You know, and so uh, you can imagine what ways was the German government and uh, reacting at that time. What was the state of the country at that time? You know, and and what sort of experiences did the did people like this director have to to reflect? The director's name is Robert Wien, by the way. So. Anyway, I don't have anything else uh, to, to discuss. It sounds like you're tapped out on it as well. Uh, so that is our thoughts and discussion on the 100th anniversary of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Have you seen this film? What do you think? Do you agree with us? Do you think it holds up? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Okay, now it's time to move on to Film Faves. Film Faves is our segment inspired by a feature I used to do on the Gibson Review, wherein we count down our respective list of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Often, we are marching backwards through time. Why we do this partially, it's to give you a sense of our taste in movies, other Reason is to also hopefully expose you to movies you haven't heard of or seen before. To that end, we try to expose you to what subscription services these movies on our list are available on. More often than not, they're available to rent on Amazon if they are not available on Netflix, Hulu, HBO Now, and Amazon Prime, the services that we focus on currently. Oh, and Disney+. Plus focus on that too in this episode it is our final episode marching backwards through time this has been a three-year journey that started with the very first episode back in 2017 with the year 2016 so this has been quite the journey we did every single year from between basically the 2016 to 1980 with a couple exceptions in there and then every decade from the 70s to now so now we are wrapping that up and that will lead to other related episodes i'll talk about later but first let's focus on the 1930s so the most obvious thing to talk about with the 1930s is this is the first decade of sound, what was known as talkies, movies with actual dialogue, audible dialogue and sound. It was not the only first, though, as at the time of the 30s, the country was going through two things simultaneously, prohibition of alcohol and the Great Depression. Prohibition of alcohol, I believe, would last until around 1933, if I'm not mistaken. The Great Depression would be relieved around 1933, but it would actually continue for most of the rest of the decade till I think, 37, 38, if I'm not mistaken. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be fully, the country wouldn't be fully healed until they actually joined World War II in 41, and it helped boom the economy. At any rate, uh, that definitely was an influence on the films that would come out in the 30s. You saw 
the rise of the gangster films in 1931 with Little Caesar and Public Enemy and then 32 with Scarface and a rash of apparently others. Those were the three most notable gangster movies, the most influential gangster movies that would go on to basically make movies like The Godfather possible and a lot of Scorsese's work as well. You also had, uh, because of the Great Depression, you had a lot of movies that were either remarking on the rich who basically lived frivolously, uh, but you also had a lot of movies that served as distractions for those who could go to the, the movies and have temporary relief. So there was a lot of comedies in the 1930s. You saw a lot of musicals, the Busby Berkeley on a kind of ensemble choreographed musicals came along in the 30s. You had Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers come along in the 1930s. A lot of things along those lines. And then also you had this really interesting time known as the pre-code where it, it, it was like this time period that existed before the precursor to the rating system we have today existed. That, that precursor was known as the Hayes Code. It was supposedly created in 1930, but it really was not enforced until strictly until 1934. So what happened in the first four years is you actually start to see a lot of risque content in that time. Sexually risque content, violent content. Scarface is actually a surprisingly violent film for it being a 1932 film. You had, oh gosh, what else? Aside from the sexuality, the suggestiveness and stuff, so many things that all of a sudden were cracked down in 1934. And as a result, also, films wouldn't really take risks creatively until the, uh, until the 1960s. There's a huge difference. I'm sure Shannon, you noticed this and you can concur between, let's say, the, 19, the films of the 1940s and the films of the mid to late 60s. Yeah, there were some really scary things that came out in the late 60s. A lot of movies that were telling it how it was, you know? And, and showing a lot of what you didn't see before in, say, the 40s, which was the first full decade of the Hayes Code, and, and even the late 30s. The 30s is one of the greatest decades in film, though, is the decade of Shirley Temple movies, Fred Astaire films, as I mentioned before, the Marx Brothers, Universal Monster movies were in their prime in the 30s. Sequels came out, a rash of sequels came out starting in the 30s. You had the introduction of color in the 30s, most notably in 1939's Wizard of Oz, and also The Women by George Cukor. And I think there was some playing of color in a couple of Shirley Temple movies as well, Technicolor technology. And then you also had the German films too, which would be hugely influential into the 40s films and help create the film noir genre. And some of those German films were really dealing with 
what are, what is considered the seedy, unpleasant side ends of society or parts of society, be it criminals or be it sex workers and and things like that. So maybe you'll hear some of these things I'm talking about reflected in our list. Uh, Shanna, was there anything that you wanted to speak to of note when cramming for this decade and, and, and you know observing and studying the decade compared to others? It could just be my maturing of film viewing. It could just be my age. But I found that with the 30s in particular, and I think I felt this way about the 60s too, so that's interesting. Mm. I either fell in love with a film or I didn't. I either knew within the first 15 minutes if I was going to like it or not. In fact, my viewing experience near the end of preparation was really changing because I had decided, look, if I don't like it after the first 20 minutes even, I'm switching it off. It's not worth my time. So I I found that experience to be very interesting were there any actual examples of films from the 30s that actually you had to fulfill that that promise of switching it off after a certain amount of time i think what ended up happening because i'm sewing masks i could just switch off in my own mind oh and focus on that but i mean there were times that i wanted to switch off the fred astaire gang movie Fred, uh, you mean... Oh, I'm sorry. Who is that person? Oh, James Cagney. Sorry. So that I wanted to switch off. And I kind of switched my mind off for a little bit, but then jumped back on. It was it was kind of weird in that way. Interesting. Uh, so were there any years when formulating your list, were there any years that stood out to you in particular as shining stars or did your list end up becoming a, a kind of a potpourri of the entire decorate decade? Looks like it was kind of peppered around. There's a couple years that have two films in them. Like 38 has two films, 36 has two films, 39. Uh, and then the rest is a little, all over the place you know I, i'm kind of similar there's actually there's no particular year that really stands out it's more like there's three years that ended up not having any movies on my list and that's 1930 1932 and 1937 i'm uh, will i'll be curious to see if any movies from those years ended up on your list as we go on but why don't you get us started with your 12th favorite 1930s movie my number 12 is the wizard of oz from 1939 we all know about this story we all know that they're traveling to the the green the emerald city yeah emerald city (laughs) they're they're going to seattle yeah yeah they're going to seattle (laughs) (laughs) anyway i think i like this film because you know it was their it was like one of the first color films and they they really got rich with all the colors it wasn't just Oh, here's some pastels. No, they really did make very bright colors, very red lips on Dorothy, uh, very red ruby shoe slippers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was it was interesting in that way. It's a little scary at times, but it's also kind of silly, and it's that traditional story of good and evil. Yeah, you're right. It is probably the first film to feature color to the extent that it did, as as I understand it. 
And, you know, that, that was a great film. Didn't quite make my list, so I'm really glad it made an appearance on yours. Where, what, what's the availability of Wizard of Oz? So it looks like there's not a lot of films on my list. I, actually, let's just look here. I don't, there's nothing available to stream. It all has to be rented via one of the renting channels, whether it's Prime. I recently discovered iTunes has some stuff to rent that might not be available on Amazon. So I, I didn't mean Prime, I meant Amazon. Mm -hmm. So that looks like the best way to get it. And if you can't get it there, if you have a local video store, then that's a good way to find things. Excellent. Yeah, that's mostly the case with my list as well. I think there's only one movie on my list that is available on a streaming subscription service. I'll mention it. Otherwise, everything on my list is either available to rent on Amazon or if you're one of the fortunate few who can access HBO Max, there's quite a few 30s films on HBO Max right now. So you can check that out. My 12th favorite 30s film it was a tough spot to try to figure out what's going to put into it, go into it. But I'm going to slot in there one of the very first Universal monster movies in earnest. Now, Universal started its act officially, technically started making monster movies in 1925 with the Phantom of the Opera. But it wasn't until another six years that they really in earnest start making these monster movies. And Dracula with Bela Lugosi from 1931 is my first pick here uh, partially because of its iconography when people are doing impressions of Dracula uh -huh. more often than not it's the Bela Lugosi voice that they are doing and that Hungarian accent but I also find that this is actually not only very good still for a time and a really great way to introduce your children to horror genre because it's by modern standards it's only terrifying enough to a certain age right i think once you hit your preteens, this movie is just an entertaining film but also as a fan of the actual source novel by bram stoker it's a really good adaptation so bella lugosi's Dracula from 1931 is my 12th favorite 30s film. My number 11 is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936. They remade this film as Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler, so it's a little like crazy. Shh, we don't talk about that. Oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> I'm joking. This has got Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur, and really what this is about is a man that inherits this massive fortune. He's from a small town. These big, I guess, New York guys come on over to him, and, you know, he's inherited this company, and they're worried about how the company is going to get divvied out or changed now that this guy is in power with his inheritance and they try to control the situation and they it's a pleasant surprise when they when we find out that you know he's not as simpleton as they think mm. and kind of plays them at their own game this is kind of also during the the depression where part of the depression era where uh, all the farmers are out of a farm yes that's and that's an important piece to the film that's that's a good point that's a good point i really liked it i think it, it kind of reminds me of miracle on 34th street in that oh someone's doing something really kind and from a genuine place 
we must stop them. You know, so <laughs> right. this is a, a great film with, with that kind of a keyword there. Excellent. My 11th favorite 30s film is Duck Soup, starring the Marx Brothers from 1933. There was a few other films I took into consideration for this slot. So I was like, ah, do I, hmm, do I want to have this film in the list? I don't know, but it's just, first of all, it's it's, it's widely considered Marx Brothers' best film, and that's partially because it's not just a madcap romp. It's also one of the most political films. Basically, the Marx Brothers, I should say Groucho Marx, he is the leader of a, com- a country called Fredonia, and he becomes like this dictator, and he goes to war uh, with a, a neighboring country, if I remember correctly. Hilarity actually does ensue because it is Groucho Marx. He's this fast-talking dude. You have Margaret Dumont, who's his regular straight gal foil, and he bounces off of her so well, and she's just able to take it. And, and, you know, she's actually fun to watch on repeated viewings, too, see how she responds to him. Duck Soup, if you haven't had the pleasure of a Marx Brothers film, uh, this is one of the best places to start. 1933, my 11th favorite 30s film. My number 10 is The Invisible Man from 1933. It's one of those universal really? monsters. And it's, it was just really interesting how they tackled the whole situation. I'm really curious how they got the invisibility going when they've got like this structure of a human moving, mm-hmm. you know, for a time that didn't have digital, ef- necessarily digital effects. Mm-hmm. So I find that super interesting. I praise them for that. What is this? For those of you who don't know, the traditional invisible man is a scientist who finds a way of making himself invisible. And I guess this starts to make him go a little insane. And all these different things start to happen in his life and to those around him. I really liked it. I thought the voice for The Invisible Man was great. Uh, that's by, do you know? Claude Rains, who Claude went on to be go. a huge star in like Casablanca and so many other movies. Oh, he looks awesome. Yeah, so... I, I like it for that. I, I thought it was a little goofy, but also not too bad. I'm glad that when they wanted to do Universal Monsters again recently, they didn't try and just redo this. They changed mm-hmm. it into something more realistic. So, Or even try to readapt the H.G. Wells novel again, which I, I highly uh, encourage people to check out, as well as this film. I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised to see it on your list. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, look... Especially after we just reviewed the remake. I will say, I've noticed that with the monster movies, women are always seen as in the way of the men's work. And I I just, I think that's interesting that they find themselves in their work so important. Mm, A couple times that's true. In a way, yeah. Yeah. It's this, I I find the theme interesting Mm. along the monster movies. Very good. My 10th favorite 30s film is another monster film uh, from Universal Studios. Same year as Dracula. It is Frankenstein from 1931, starring Boris Karloff. This film made him a huge star. 
Uh, he would actually go on to reprise the role of Frankenstein's monster uh, three times, I think, if I remember correctly. And also, like, what, the next year he was a supporting character in Scarface, actually. Uh, so he went on to be a legend. And what's interesting about this film, I think it's a, a little bit underrated by modern audiences. I think what people don't realize is, first of all, a lot of people forget that the monster's name is not Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein is actually the, the scientist who brings him to life, right? But also, there's a lot of humanity in this film compared to all the other monster films, right? Like, the monster, he is, he is brought to life not by his own choice, right? And he's trying to wander around and figure out the world. He's trying to learn how to relate, accidents happen as he blunders through this and it's it's man's reaction to his appearance largely and and fear that causes chaos in the end so i think it's a fascinating monster early monster film it should really be checked out and revisited by modern audiences that's frankenstein from 31 my number nine is heidi from 1937 the Shirley Temple Heidi. They call her an orphan girl. So I guess that translates to, well, she lost her parents, so therefore she's an, or- an, an yes. author, an orphan. Yes, <laughs> she is. She gets dropped off at her grandpa that she's never met before, mm-hmm. who I don't think knew about her right. uh, by her apparent aunt, but I don't think that that's the case. Drops her off and then leaves her, you know, in this mountain, in this cabin. The grandfather, through a few years of family issues and town issue, issues with the town, has isolated himself. And so she brings her energy, her love, and kind of helps him fall in love with the world again. And it's really lovely. And then a, a bit of human trafficking happens, and uh, that's and it's not a spoiler because it's it's the tale. And uh, she is uh, human trafficked to uh, keep a injured girl company and entertained. So we've got yeah, really I- interesting things here. I love the characters. I want to own this movie. Mm. It's the first time I got to watch it. You know, in South Africa. The TV show, the animated TV show Heidi was on all the time and they had translated it to Afrikaans. Mm. And so I never watched it, but it was always on. Huh. Interesting. I, I, I'm amused by your casual mention of, yeah, there's some human trafficking in here. It, it's, it's, it's really funny, but, you well, know. It's, it's a serious thing. It's not wrong. And but, it is what it is. Yeah. And maybe we just didn't. I don't know when people started calling it that, but my one dear friend who uh, is an advocate for, you know, against human trafficking, um, you know, I said, did you know that this had this? And she was like, oh, yes. Right, <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, my God, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you that you enjoyed it, even despite the horrible people that are in, in that story. And, and but there's sure, no dogs. Uh, no dogs get hurt. It's great. Yeah, but Shirley Temple just definitely melts your heart. Absolutely. Uh, my ninth favorite 30s film is my only film that is available on one of our streaming services we focus on. 
It's available on Amazon Prime. It is John Ford's Stagecoach from 1939, starring John Wayne and a great cast of, of characters in a stagecoach. This is actually a really great early movie of that takes a variety, a mix of characters. You have a drunk doctor, you have a prostitute, you have uh, an outlaw, you have kind of a, a snooty, I think he's a poker player guy, he's kind of an arrogant dude, a woman of a certain class who's pregnant, all these different personalities and put him in a closed space for a large part of the film and see what happens. And that's kind of fun and cool. It's also one of the seminal Westerns. It's not like one of the first Westerns, of course. The 30s was riddled with uh, kind of low-budget Westerns, from what I understand. But this is one of the first, like, really, truly notable Westerns. And, of course, like, John Ford would go on to help really define and shape that genre from here on. And uh, it's a great starting point, Stagecoach. I highly recommend it. If you're curious about this John Wayne fella, definitely check him out in here because, you know, John Ford definitely makes him a star within five seconds. My next one is The Blue Angel. It's a German film, so I think you say Die Blue Engel. Wow, that's very cool. Uh, And it's from 1930, and it was one of the first talking films, right, in Germany? Yes. Okay. It might have been the first. Oh, all right. Uh, and it's 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 a great intro to talking films, I think. It must have been very exciting at the at the time. This is about a professor who has a very strict life for himself, and he likes to be he's like someone moral, to look up to. Yeah, he's a moral you know? authority, right? Yeah, as a professor. Yeah, and, you know, his children are misbehaving. He finds out that it must be because of this one sort of burlesque showgirl, mm-hmm. and he approaches her, but he falls in love with her. She's charming. He can't help it. Uh, and slowly his morals that he had decay and send him into this, this madness and hatred and very upsetness. His love and happiness is very short-lived, and... It's it's an interesting look at, you know, like if you start letting your morals up a little bit, they'll quickly start to crumble away, as you have said before to me. And I like this film as an intro to talkies because they this is happening in a, in a school, but then the other setting is in the burlesque show. So you're out there in the crowd with him and you hear all this stimulating talking, there's dialogue, there's glasses clinking, there's, you know, a normal sounding place. Mm. And then he goes to the uh, dressing room and you can hear everything out there in this dressing room and you close the door and it's completely silent. Mm. And it's a nice break and reset from all the stimulating fun noise you heard. Awesome. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to hear that that connected with you as well as it did. And that was a star-making role for Marlena Dietrich. And also notable because there is a German and an English version of the film shot simultaneously. I highly recommend checking out the German one. I've seen the, Amer- the English one, and it feels awkward. 
Uh, it really feels off. So check out the German version of that film. Yeah, what year was that one again? 1930. Excellent. My number eight favorite 30s film is from 1938. It is Bringing Up Baby by Howard Hawks, a legendary director starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. Uh, Catherine Hepburn basically is this force of chaos, just absolute... <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you would say she's naive, but she is almost clueless at times uh, of, of chaos. It's a fast-talking and film. And the chaos she causes. Yes. She yeah. basically distracts and, and, and creates chaos from Cary Grant's life. He has a very important meeting he's supposed to make with this guy who's basically going to help with the future of his uh, project as a paleontologist. Or, or I guess maybe a curator of a, of a um, historical museum, I should He's say. He's basically trying to get funding for the museum. Yeah. And Catherine Hepburn comes casually into his life and takes him away, basically, because of her chaos and, and rid- ridiculousness. This is one of those movies that just goes at such a pace. The talking is at such a pace. The nonsense for lack of a better term goes at such a pace it just gets increasingly and increasingly ridiculous and by the way there's what is it a panther not a panther it's a jaguar there's a jaguar involved in all this how does a jaguar get involved you'll have to watch the movie uh it's in order to believe it but it is a hilarious film i've always loved it. it's considered one of the greatest comedies of all time so check it out bringing up baby from 1938. My next one is from 1933. It's Footlight Parade. Oh. You know, and that's got James Cagney as well. And then uh, Joan Blundell are the two main characters. She's great, by the way. Yeah, I love her. So our main guy, he he has to come up with pictures and little prologues, I guess, little viewings before a real movie. Yeah, so this yeah. is an actual thing that I didn't even know existed until I saw this film. In high-end theatrical palaces, before a movie would begin, they would have actual stage productions to help entertain the audience before the movie uh, began. But these are... I guess to warm them up before the movie, which yes. is super interesting concept. I'm like, can we do that? Right, <laughs> yeah. So it's about basically them creating a series of these what we call prologues, prologues to the movie that they're going to screen. It's like a lot happens to get to the point that I really love, and the point that I really love is when they actually show us what the prologues end up looking like. Mm-hmm. And there's this fantastic water scene, and it's just extravagant and gorgeous, and I want to be there, you know, because there's a lot of synchronized swimming, there's a lot of waterfalls, there's a lot of play with costuming, and wonderful camera angles, wonderful lighting, wonderful variety. There's reflections, there's silhouettes, there's just so much stimulation for me. I'm a big lover of water. It's my favorite thing. And I just loved it. And, you know, that's one thing that they show. And then they show one before that and one after that. And the one before that is about Honeymooners Hotel, which is a very cute little, I guess this was when the code was in effect. Oh, what year did this movie come out? 33. It was before the code. Okay, so it was just before the code, but 
so it was you, you I mean, see before it was you see enforced. single beds yeah. you know like single double beds so the people are you know getting in bed with each other which is really fun and then uh, the third one, I actually forget what the third prologue was. Do you remember what it was? I, I actually forgot uh, as oh, okay. well. But it's worth knowing. This is a Busby Berkeley musical. Yeah. You'll find the poster very interesting on IMDb right now. It looks like the woman on Naked, but mm. it's just bathing suits that are flesh-colored. So it's, it's a really fun film. I liked it. Nice. Very cool. Very interesting. My seventh favorite 30s film is one of your favorites, actually. I think this might be the first one on my list to come up that's on your list. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936. Lovely. The Frank Capra film starring Gary Cooper. I think by far this is my favorite Gary Cooper film. I've seen a handful of his films. I don't think you've seen very many of his, if I remember correctly. Uh, Pride of the Yankees, High Noon, and uh, several others. This is my favorite. I think... Because of its everyman quality, because of his general kindness and con- congeniality towards people and expecting it in return and how he bounces off those who are just trying to use him, trying to get at his fortune, which it actually is a, a fortune. I can't even remember the sum total, but it was a lot of money. The fact that he doesn't even respond to how much money it is. He doesn't even feel like he needs it necessarily. He's just trying to figure out what the right thing to do with it is. And of course, the fact that someone like him would be judged as insane for trying to do like the right thing and not the selfish thing or to give in to leeches is, is really interesting, especially in this time of, of the Great Depression. Uh, there's a certain degree of... Uh, fantasy wish fulfillment uh, or what would you do you know during this time if this were to happen to you well here's a really good example of of what you could do uh, with that money and uh, the way he tells off people in the end is great so Mr. Deeds Goes to Town by Frank Capra is my seventh favorite 30s film it's from 1936 my next one is from 1935 the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh my God! I can't believe that made your list. I almost had it in mind. I oh, didn't well, there expect we go. It to be I took care list. of it for you. That's fantastic. <laughs> really, I love this movie for the bride. I think she's just gorgeous. I love her. I, I love watching her move. I love watching her interact, and I love her costuming and hair and makeup. It's it's really iconic. I love it. Uh, we open with Mary Shelley and she reveals the main characters of her novel have survived and lots of things happen in between. I felt like this was a more grounded version of the story. It really focuses on Frankenstein's monster, where he's going and who he interacts with. And that was very interesting to me. I'm surprised to see this on your list because I thought you you reacted fairly indifferent uh, to it at the time when you first saw it. This was a new discovery for you. I prefer this one yeah. between the two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. It goes even further with the humanity, with Frank, with the monster learning how to speak and other things, too, thanks to the blind man. This, it's a great film. That's fantastic. I, I'm so pleased to see that on your list. My sixth favorite 30s film, as we hit the halfway mark here, is 1934's The Thin Man. Now... A lot of people mistake the title referring to William Pell, 
the main character of the film, who is this former private investigator or detective that not too long ago got married to a wealthy woman played by Myrna Loy, if I remember correctly, put that past behind him. In fact, the, the title actually refers to another character who went missing, who is the source of this huge mystery that William Powell's character gets sucked into as much as he tries resisting. And his wife is kind of getting a kick out of it. And she's kind of all in for the ride of, of what happens. She definitely encourages his sleuthing, uh, much to his chagrin, because he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. But this movie is hilarious. It is so fun. William Powell is the best love him and uh we, we we could all use more william powell in our lives and myrna loy is such a great has such great chemistry with him and and the dynamic between them is fantastic and the mystery is not too bad either especially how it all uh comes to a head in near the end so that's the thin man from 1934 my next one is Modern Times from 36 with Charlie Chaplin, of course. And this is all about him, his character trying to be okay with the, you know, this new way of living. And he gets help from a homeless woman. And my absolute favorite part of this, the reason this is on my list is because this was the first time he would talk. And he was pressured to talk. Uh, you know, he was known for his silent movies. And he, he decides... Uh, Charlie Chaplin, and he decides, well, if I have to talk, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And he ends up singing a song that you think has meaning, but it's all gibberish. And, it, you know, it sounds like real words, but how it's strung together, it's from different languages, different kinds of speaking. And it, it's just a lovely little fuck you. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, and if I remember correctly, that is actually your favorite Chaplin film, is it not? Yes. Yeah. My fifth favorite 30s film is also a William Powell film, My Man Godfrey from 1936. So two years later, William Powell would star in this Depression-era comedy where he plays a guy who's living in basically the slums on the waterfront. He gets picked up by a bunch of rich people who are on a scavenger hunt and apparently finding a quote-unquote lost man, which is a homeless man, a man lost to society, is one of the things on the scavenger hunt. And essentially, that event in the beginning of the film whisks him away into this rich, crazy, madcap family. And it is, a, it is a very silly, rich, loony family. Uh, the dynamics uh, between it, uh, between the different members, the mother, the father, the two sisters. I think Carol Lombard, if I'm not mistaken, plays the primary female character of the family who grows an attachment, instant attachment to William Powell's character. It's, it's a very silly hilarious, but also interesting social commentary uh, comedy of the Depression era in the 30s. And I think it's worth uh, checking out if you haven't already. Again, William Powell is the man, 1936, my man Godfrey. I think we're on number four now, aren't we? We are. 
All right. My number four is Bringing Up Baby from 1938. You've already spoken about this. I, I'm a big fan of these two actors, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. I, I think this is the whiniest Catherine Hepburn gets. Mm. So it's a little like jarring for me at times, but I also think it's hilarious. I love her. I love the story. I don't think you should ever have a wild animal as a pet. That's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> Things will happen. And I, I don't really have anything to say about it other than I love the two of them. You've always loved this film since I first showed it to you years ago. We had to rewatch it recently because it had been long enough that you didn't remember the movie at all. Yes, that's true. Uh, but I think that may have been one of your first exposures to Cary Grant as well. This and Probably Arsenic Nobles. also the first exposure to Catherine Hepburn. Right. And so I forgot that it was actually her. Mm. Because I love all her other movies. Right, yeah, yeah. And they're both great comedic performers, uh, for sure. My fourth favorite 30s film is Going Back to the Marx Brothers. It actually is 1935's A Night at the Opera. I've seen a good handful of their films. I haven't seen the first three, like Coconuts and Horse Feathers, if I remember correctly. Animal Crackers, or I can't remember all of them. But the ones I have seen... I think actually A Night at the Opera is probably the one that I just I just can't help but smile while watching. It's just so silly and hilarious. <laughs> and it has a couple really famous madcap physical comedic scenes. Essentially in this one, what happens is... Okay, let's see if I can explain this. So there's one opera singer in England. He's very snooty. And he's looking, I think someone is trying to hire him to join their theater in New York. Well, Groucho gets involved, pretends to be a theater producer, and he hires another uh, theater performer, uh, mistakenly, who is represented by Chico Marx. And basically, one, and I think the other performer is actually Zeppo Marx of the Marx Brothers. He's mm -hmm. kind of more of the straight man. Uh, and essentially, the idea is to get them to the United States, help this one theater in its performance or this one show in its performance, get the snooty, abusive uh, theater performer out of the way. That's kind of a, a twisty, very thin plot that all the hilarity and silliness uh, hangs on, especially with scenes by Chico and, and Groucho Marx together. Margaret Dumont also is in this uh, once again, playing the straight woman to Groucho. I can't, I can't recommend them enough. If you like, if you like uh, verbal comedy, you must see the Marx Brothers. If you like physical comedy, you must see the Marx Brothers. And A Night at the Opera is the one for me that is my favorite. From 1938, I have Boys Town as my number three with oh, wow. Spencer Tracy. So isn't it funny? I have my Catherine Hepburn at number four and I have my Spencer Tracy at number three just where I need them. They're uh, a really great <laughs> discovery for you through this whole process. I just love them so fucking much. Uh, so this is actually a biography. There's this wonderful man. Father Flanagan, mm -hmm. who goes to see a death row prisoner 
and he really listens to this man freaking out, uh, rightly so, about you know being sentenced to death for things that were completely out of his control. He basically blurts out his whole life story in the matter of a minute. And, you know, Father Flanagan is listening and he realizes had someone intervened when this adult was a child, his life would have gone a different direction. Mm. What Father Flanagan ends up doing is he ends up helping helping young boys who had been orphaned or whose parents, you know, just weren't there for them. And he creates a home for them. And once the home is overrun, they find a huge piece of property, a ranch, and they call it Boys Town. The boys have a say in what gets done. The boys, ha- like they have elect- election processes mm-hmm. for who's going to be the mayor, etc. Most boys are looking for this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a boy that said he he hiked for four days, no food, no sleep. And I think he said no sleep, but definitely no food, no rest. Mm-hmm. And... It just breaks your heart, and but it makes you excited too because he has this place for him, you mm. know. Uh, it's Spencer Tracy as Father Flanagan, and then we have Mickey Rooney as one of the as one of the children whose older brother sends to Boys Town, and you know he's not really sure how to rewire his brain, how to rewire his behavior. He's a much older boy; I think he's like sixteen or fifteen, so he's had to live the way he's lived for a very long time. And it's interesting to see how loving Father Flanagan is, but how tough he is at the same time. And I am very curious about this place in real life, you Mm. know? Yeah, Mickey Rooney thinks he's quite tough. I love seeing boys portrayed like this too, Mm. that they want to be better. They want to be their best selves. We don't really see that very often. Yeah, uh, that's a, a great film, and it almost made my list as well. You knew it was going to make mine because of Spencer Tracy, didn't you? I had a feeling you might like it, yeah. And after you watched it, I'm not surprised at all to see it on your list because you had a great response to it. My third favorite 30s film ended up being King Kong from 1933, a legendary film. It has been remade, I know, pandemic aside universal studios has been trying to get you know this whole other series of king kong related movies happening so that way he can fight godzilla but this is kind of where it all started and you know it's one of those movies that you 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 watch as a kid and it just fills you with such a sense of wonder like oh my gosh like does such a place exist you know and you're like, wow, there's dinosaurs there? What if there are all these creatures that got lost in time and they're all on this one island, you know? And it's just kind of awesome and, and they creative. were totally safe from volcanic eruptions, climate change, carbon poisoning, all of that stuff. <laughs> sure, yeah, right. It's a um, fun idea, for sure. But what's also really cool is the stop-motion animation in the film, how well it actually holds up. Uh, there is a certain degree of fluidity to it the the idea that the the fact that king khan is able to actually become such a fully realized believable character with expressions in such an old film that is you know within the first 40 years of film history is quite remarkable and impressive and i think there's a reason why this story has endured and I think it's it's really great. 
It's not perfect by today's standards in a couple different ways, but it is definitely uh, one that should be remembered and embraced. So that's King Kong. From 1933 is my third favorite 30s film. My number two we just finished watching today called The Woman Ah. from 1939. This is a film ahead of its time. It's so great. It only features women. Men aren't even in the background. It is woman upon woman layers, you know? Yep. Okay, so what is it about other than the wonderfulness of women? Well, it's actually, (laughs) it doesn't really put them in the best light at times, but it also shows the different characters that can exist in womanhood our main character our wonderful main actress norma Shear, is the the wife of someone some man it doesn't even matter and he cheats on her and how she finds out is nasty and awful and she holds her head up high she is full of grace she just powers through all the things that happen with women in this film delights me, angers me, but is also like, Mm-mm, don't do that. Mm. <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun. I really love it. If you ever watched The Woman starring Meg Ryan, you need to go watch this one because this one is so much better, obviously, and mm. I don't recommend the remake. Yeah, Rosalind Russell, who was in His Girl Friday, which we talked about in a previous episode, is fantastic in it. And uh, Paulette Godard, who's in my next movie I'm going to talk about, is also great in it and wonderful to see. But it's an interesting satire on, you know, all these women, like, they're all rich, right? They're, there's, they're all of a certain class, and there's a certain boredom with them and and that manifests into gossip and it gets kind of nasty but it's a fun film it was a new new one for me too notable for its all-female cast and it's written by women based on a play by a woman so i had a feeling it might be interesting to you and i'm really glad that you embraced it my second favorite 30s film is one that stars uh, paulette goddard It is Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin. This is probably my favorite Charlie Chaplin film, like it is for you, Shanna. There's just so many great set pieces and moments of hilarity in it. Uh, You have the famous visual of him going through the gears and trying to uh, fix the gears as he's winding through them himself. And he goes <laughs> he's on. He's a great this, multitasker. Well, uh, he's he's sucked into the machine, right? Man and machine become one in this visual. And then he goes on to this. It's, it's, he, he experiences, uh, what do you call that? When it's like um, things going on. A, a, a Conveyor belt? Like a conveyor like mania essentially ah. where he's having to constantly work <laughs> constantly keep up right and then there's other things where he's testing out uh he's being asked to test out a feeding machine and what happens when that feeding machine goes haywire and so many other things you're right about the big middle finger to the talkie movement that he gives uh in the second half of the film seeming absolute nonsense it's my favorite Mm -hmm. it's great and also the only other voice that we hear in the film comes from an authoritarian figure in the industrial 
uh, who, who represents the industrial movement, right? Of industry. It's a great satire on industry, on man and machine, on progress. I think it even opens with this wonderful fade of a crowd of people and sh- a crowd of sheep. And kind of, <laughs> do you remember that? I, I don't, but that sounds awesome. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic, wonderful, great, capital G, great film and a hilarious one. I love it. Modern Times, 1933 by Charlie Chaplin. All right. My number one is The Thin Man. Well, really? I just love that movie so much. Wow. There's a mystery. I, you know, I think I have it, and then I don't have it, and then, you know, it gets solved in the end, and I just I love how he puts it together. I love that he gets roped into it, even though he tries so hard mm. to get out of it. It's like quicksand for him. You know, he it's his ability at times to just be very blasé and be like, oh, I'm not getting involved in that. No, thanks. Right. <laughs> but it happens anyway. <laughs> it just it just att- he just attracts it somehow. So I, I love that movie. I love the performances. I, I love the story. I definitely did not expect that to be your favorite 30s film. That is an interesting surprise. I laughed a lot in that film and was satisfied because mysteries. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you guess what my favorite 30s film is? Well, if it's not Charlie Chaplin, Modern Times, then what is it? It is a Frank Capra film starring Jimmy Stewart and Claude Rains. That's what it is. Okay, I got you. Mr. Smith goes to washington basically if you're not familiar with this movie essentially gosh i can't remember how it happens but jimmy stewart is this simple wide-eyed guy who just believes in democracy he believes in our government process he believes in politics and he gets kind of swept up to try to fill this seat in i think the senate if i remember correctly expecting him to be just this guy who does whatever he's told to do or manipulated to do and essentially a corrupt stooge right while being a naive stooge that doesn't that's not how things shake out (laughs) and claude rains becomes this this uh, plays this guy who is supposedly a friend of his from a long history and ends up actually being someone who's a kind of a important part of this corrupting process of of the political machine. It's remarkable and striking to me how this film that is 80 years old, 81 years old now, is still relevant today and Jimmy Stewart gives one of his best performances. There's actually some dark stuff that happens in the second half of the film that when I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that actually just happened. The the lengths that people will go to to really try to throw off anything that promotes Mr. Smith's campaign of what he ends up trying to do. You know, which is for the greater good and is for the greater good of democracy and is about someone standing up and doing what's right. It's a fantastic, wonderful film uh, that really hopefully gives you hope and, and, and belief in our country again. That's Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939. Okay, so uh, Shanna, were there any movies that 
you wanted to fit into a list but just couldn't no i was pretty satisfied with my list i got lucky this time really that's interesting uh for me there was a couple you mentioned uh bride of frankenstein and boys town i actually expected m to make your list it was going to and i realized you know there wasn't enough time to rewatch it so i was uncomfortable putting it on there interesting because i remember you absolutely loved that movie when we saw it there's a movie I want to show you called Freaks from 1932 by the same guy who directed Dracula. But um, that one was another one that I also considered for this list. But yeah, I had a way. Do I put two Marx Brothers movies on my list? Do I put two Dra- uh, uh, Frankenstein movies on my list? And, uh, and so I went the direction I went. Wizard of Oz was also in consideration. Uh, was there anything that you wished you'd gotten to see that you didn't get to? I did wish that I could rewatch M, and but I think that was it. There's a musical that James Whale directed, the director of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, and The Bride of Frankenstein. He directed a musical starring Paul Robards. I had heard of it for years. It's called Showboat. Very hard to get my hands on that film. I really am kicking myself for missing the opportunity once again to catch up with that one. There's a couple Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger movies like Swing Time uh, that I, I wanted us to catch up with. There's one or two Shirley Temple movies that we didn't quite get to squeeze in. I think mm-hmm. you only got to see one and a half Shirley Temple movies. Mm-hmm. I got to revisit The Little Princess, um, but didn't get to revisit like The Littlest Colonel. Or um, I think there's one other one we didn't get to see. So there's a handful of movies that I didn't quite get to catch up with that I wanted to to make sure I really captured this decade as best as possible. But maybe another time. Who ended up being your favorite actors or actresses from the 30s? You know, I, I didn't really have anyone in particular. I I liked Powell. What is his William name? William Powell? William Powell. I think I liked him. And actress-wise, I, I didn't really have someone who was featured a lot. Mm-hmm. But I did like people, for the cast from The Woman. I, I loved Norma Shear. And I loved Paulette Goddard. Mm-hmm. And Joan Fontana. Joan Fontaine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was the last surviving cast member of that film, if I understand correctly, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, she passed away, I don't know, several years ago. Not too long. Uh, for me, I think my favorite, aside from the Marx Brothers, is probably William Powell. Love him. And based on my list, anyway, you know, there's a lot of one-off movies or or or, sorry performers that made one appearance in my list but i think william powell and the marx brothers are the two that i love most and then of course charlie chaplin city lights from 1931 it didn't quite make my list but i do love that film as well and in addition to modern times so those are my favorites from the 30s what are your favorite movies from the 30s? Uh, are any of ours yours as well? Feel free to share with us at the Gibson Review at gmail.com. So that'll almost wrap up our March Backwards Through Time, but we have one more thing to settle, Shanna. One more thing. 
The Silent Era. Now, we're not going to do a full list on The Silent Era because, well, I've seen only so many and you certainly have less to draw from. Uh, but can you tell us what your single favorite film from the silent era, which is basically 1890 to 1929, what that film is? I'd have to say that it's A Trip to the Moon. I think it's hilarious. I think there's really cute moments. There's fun stuff happening with all the costuming. The story is sweet. Uh, you know, they, they take a trip to the moon and the, they land in the moon right above its eye. Right into its and, eye. Oh, right into its eye. And I'm like, that's so rude. <laughs> and, and it's a gooey texture. And they it's so cute because... We didn't know anything about the moon back then. We didn't know it was going to be powdery texture. And they decided to go with cheese. And so that something like cheese. And so that's really fun. Yeah, that movie is by George Melier, by the way, who is prominently featured in a Scorsese film called Hugo. And it is from the, the year 1902, inspired, of course, by a Jules Verne novel. Uh, that's an awesome, excellent uh, pick. It's only, depending on the version you see, it's anywhere between 9 to 18 minutes long, uh, which was often the case in that era of silent film, by the way. And it's usually available to stream on Netflix or Hulu. Or it, it bounces around. Definitely on YouTube, for sure. My favorite silent film is... 1925's The General, starring Buster Keaton, which is a Civil War comedy, believe it or not. It's a very weird phrase you have there. Well, hey, you know, someone said that last year about a, a Nazi youth comedy. So This is true. You know, Jojo Rabbit. But uh, yeah, Buster Keaton, man, he is incredible. One of the first class physical comedians. The stunts he would do on this train trying to chase after his girl who got taken away by i think members of the other side of the civil war uh from where he's fighting there's so many incredible stunts it is such an awesome hilarious and wonderful film it's definitely my favorite buster keaton film of the ones that i've seen of his it's definitely worth hunting down and checking out. That's The General from 1925. is my favorite silent film. So, Shanna, before we get into what people can expect in the future and where we're going to go from here, now that we've finished marching backwards through time, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? You can find me uh, on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography. And if you so desire, I'm on Flick Chart 2 uh, under Spellbinding A. So I'm on Flick Chart as well, uh, the Gibson 99. The main website, of course, is thegibsonreview.com. You'll find all past articles, reviews, um, features, episodes of the movie lovers, best of the decades, best of the years, all that stuff will be on that website. You could go to Facebook slash The Gibson Review to see some content there. I'm most active on Instagram at The Gibson 99. I even do uh, bracket polls on Instagram stories to find out what your favorite movies are. 
we in our last episode around that time we were wrapping up our poll for favorite 40s movies and Casablanca ended up being your favorite 40s movie. We also did a very quick mini poll of favorite 4th of July movies, movies to watch during 4th of July, capturing that sense of Independence Day. And Captain America, the first Avenger, ended up being that. Right now, we are doing a poll, wrapping up a poll for favorite biopic. We are in the round four of that, so we're down to our final four of that poll uh we'll find out where that goes but uh soon we'll also be doing our favorite night your favorite 1930s movies on there so go to the gibson 99 on instagram to be able to participate in the fun is there anything else that uh no no other place okay so let's um talk about where we go from here wrapping up from this march backwards through time we have a series of episodes that we're going to do, kind of peppered through. Oh, very exciting. You've worked very hard on this. Thank you. Uh, it's a balance of filling in time since the theater openings keep getting delayed and also like figuring out, well, like, are these movies going to open when they're, when they're saying they're opening right now? Uh, so it's going to depend on some of that. But the next episode, what we're going to do is going to have a main event Talking about blind spots, movies that after all this time going backwards through all these years, 80 plus years of film, what movies did we still not get to that we really wanted to check out? And our film fave segment will be our favorite discoveries from this process of going backwards through time. Movies that we discovered as a result of this for the very first time that it ended up uh, being among our favorites. So that's the next episode of The Movie Lovers. Feel free to let us know if you want. You can write in about your blind spots as well. If you've been following along with us, what some of your discoveries based on our list, if you watch some movies from listening to us, what some of your discoveries were. But you can find that episode on Tuesday, August 4th. And then from there, we will eventually get into our favorite actors and actresses of all time based on appearances in our list. And we'll get into, I think, um, what will we get into? I have my notes here. Favorite directors of all time based on what's appeared on our list uh, most. Uh, Favorite movie years movie like years that have had the most awesome movies that ended up on our list we've got a lot of data happening here yeah (laughs) and all of it is going to build towards our ultimate list of our 12 favorite movies of all time which hopefully will happen in the next couple months so keep your ear out watch on the social media for announcements of these episodes Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.